Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of SITREP with a unique perspective on the start of the Falklands War 40 years ago. Julian Mannion was a television reporter dispatched to Argentina's capital after its military dictatorship invaded the islands. He got a unique insight into the regime that had taken the British overseas territory, interviewing the Argentine leader, General Galtieri, and was wined and dined by the country's top brass. But only after he narrowly escaped being murdered. I've been talking to Julian Mannion about his book, Kidnapped by the Junta. He tells me how he discovered who was behind his ordeal and what one officer told him about the drinking habits of Argentina's dictator. But he began by explaining what Argentina was like at the time and what drove it to invade the Falklands. Well, the economic situation in Argentina was, as it had been for quite some time, chaotic. And there had been a prolonged, violent uh, suppression of leftist opposition inside the country. Uh, There were several revolutionary groups which were openly and actively trying to topple both the previous regime and subsequently the military regime. And uh, the military regime set out, in its own words, to restore order. And they did so in the most ferocious and draconian fashion using the secret police to arrest large numbers of people, torture them for information, and in many cases they were, to use the jargon of the time, disappeared, murdered. In some cases thrown from aircraft into the South Atlantic, in other cases um, cemented into oil drums and dumped in the river. And clearly one of the principal motives for the seizure of the islands was Uh, to uh, try to, for the regime to try to regain some popularity. And in the short term, uh, in the very short term, that succeeded. But of course, in the longer term, it led to their removal. You mentioned the disappeared. You were almost disappeared yourself. The title of the book, Kidnapped by the Junta, refers to your experience and that of your camera crew. How did it happen? Well, we had been um, at the foreign ministry attempting to secure an interview with the foreign minister, Nicanor Costa-Mendes. We then left the foreign ministry, got in the car and began to drive off. Literally minutes later, another vehicle cut across our path. I got out of our car to see what on earth was going on and immediately found myself with a pistol in my face and being propelled by a couple of very powerful uh, men into the back of their car where I was made to lie down in the, in the rear well and driven off. And you even endured a mock execution. What happened? Well, also kidnapped in the same way where our cameraman, Ted Adcock, uh, and our sound recorders, Trevor Hunter, the three of us found ourselves in a field um, and were instructed by these uh, the kidnappers, who were men, it should be said, in smart suits, um, in possession of uh, radios in their vehicles with which they communicated uh, with each other and some sort of control. Uh, we were instructed to take off our clothes, uh, except for our underpants for some reason, um, uh, at, at which point one of the men produced a rifle from the boot of the car uh, of, uh, and we were told to walk away from them. And it must be said that at that moment, um, uh, all of us were convinced that our number was up. But in fact, what took place was that we walked um, very slowly away from them. uh, And instead of hearing what everyone hears when one is being shot, uh, what we heard was the sound of tyres scrunching on soil. 
And when we dared to turn around, uh, our kidnappers' ve vehicles had gone and we were alone and virtually naked in a field in a country uh, with which Britain was at war. Do you know why you were released? Was it a mistake or did your kidnappers have second thoughts? Uh, the simple answer to that is no. Um, we don't know what thoughts they had because they didn't uh, trouble to explain them. Um, what we do know is that they were in frequent radio contact with somebody, though we don't know who. Julian, when you talk about this experience, it sounds like you are almost reporting on your own life. You, you, it must affect you, though. Well, I mean, it affected one at the time. Um, I mean, we are 40 years <laughs> past it, thankfully. But, uh, I mean, you know, it is part of the job of covering conflict, as um, our colleagues uh, attempting to cover the conflict in Ukraine presently know all too well. Why were you targeted? Um, yeah, of course, it's not entirely clear. But the, the, our information about this comes from um, uh, the recent release of a number of documents uh, by uh, the American Central Intelligence Agency and other agencies of the US government. And among those documents are five um, documents dealing with our kidnapping. And one of them identifies the name of the leader of the kidnapped gang. His name was Annabel Gordon, a really bloodstained figure who had killed many people. And there are also various suggestions as to why this had taken place. Um, it should be said um, that uh, in the American documents is a very interesting report from the CIA warning that their sources inside the um, Army Intelligence Services uh, were reporting that uh, these uh, units were preparing to carry out the murder of some 500 uh, British residents in Argentina if the war involved serious bloodshed. Now, we don't know if we fit in, fitted into that picture. One really hopes not. But all I can say is that uh, on that day, we, we were <laughs> dumped nearly naked in a field in the middle of Argentina. Uh, and happily, um, after that, uh, we were able to return to Buenos Aires and the threat to murder large number of British residents was not realised. And then you describe an extraordinary turn of events when you were wined and dined, almost by way of apology, by the very top echelons of the country's military. And you were even hosted by President Galtieri. It was, must have been extraordinary. Well, it was extraordinary in the sense that um, when we uh, finally got back to Buenos Aires by way of a rather startled uh, police chief in the town of Pilar, um, we um, first of all had to, of course, uh, give account of ourselves to our fellow journalists. And then shortly after that, um, uh, a message arrived from the presidential palace that President Galtieri would like to um, receive us um, later that uh, evening. It turned out to be very late that night. We went to what was called the Casa Rosada, the Pink Palace, um, and met Galtieri himself, who was extremely cordial and did uh, actually express his regret for what had happened and said that I asked him uh, who had done it. Uh, and he said, Grupo um, Muy uh, Reducido. In other words, a very small group that did not want peace. Following this, uh, we were able to interview him. And uh, after that, we were taken to dinner. It was by, by now about two o'clock or so in the morning uh, by the Interior Minister, uh, General Alfredo Saint-Jean together with a group of army and navy officers, naval officers, all smartly uniformed, uh, we were wined and dined into the small hours. 
Oh, what was your impression of Galtieri? Well, my, my um, impression of him was partly conditioned by a naval officer who escorted us to see him, uh, who, as we went up in the lift, said to me, Signor Mannion, you must be aware that today is Navy Day, and on Navy Day, our president has the habit of having a little drink, he said. He was basically telling me, as had been rumoured, that Galtieri was spent some of his time at least drunk. And this is confirmed in the American documents, incidentally. Personally, he was actually, when he met us, very genial. He was quite a striking figure in that he was tall, uh, wearing a force of military uniform. But uh, it must be said, uh, in retrospect, I suppose, that many Argentines would feel that he was not up to the job. And Julian, there you were in that restaurant, Los Años Locos, having dinner with the with the Junta, as it was in conflict with the UK over the Falklands. What was going through your mind? Well, I mean, the, the events obviously were happening at, at quite a pace, and therefore there isn't a great deal of time to reflect, if you like. Well, well, I, I was uh, seeking both to sort of recover from the experience of uh, being kidnapped and possibly murdered, um, and uh, trying to, at the same time, uh, gain some sort of feel of what these gentlemen thought um, uh, and had to say. And uh, I mean, one of the curious events which took place during that dinner was that about halfway through, um, we, were in a, we were in a private room in a restaurant which was actually, the, the rest of it was closed, but the staff had been ordered to continue working. About halfway through, another smartly uniformed officer, perhaps a lieutenant, uh, came in uh, to the room carrying a silver salver on which was an envelope. And um, he delivered it to the interior minister, Saint-Jean, who opened it. And then he turned to me and he said, Senior Magnon, um, we have this, um, this message says that we have just destroyed your aircraft carrier, the Invincible, with an airstrike. And um, he then said, rather surprisingly, he said, do you think this is true? Well, obviously, I had not the slightest idea, I mean, that such a terrible event could have taken place or not. And that's what I said. The Argentine officers then toasted um, the, this apparently successful blow against the Royal Navy, uh, and the dinner continued. In fact, it turned out that what had happened was that an airstrike had hit one of the frigates, and the bomb had literally gone in one side of the ship and out the other um, without exploding. It illustrated, I think, if nothing else, uh, the rather limited information the other times were receiving about what was taking place in the war zone. Indeed, the fog of war. Um, you write about the war behind the conflict, the so-called dirty war in Argentina, the campaign by the dictatorship to exterminate anyone who opposed its thinking. What kind of impact did that dirty war have on the Falklands conflict? Well, I think it had a great impact in the decision to do it um, on the Argentine side, in the sense that um, the, 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 they were not only concerned uh, to increase their popularity um, uh, with, with the population, they were also very concerned, and the, the American documents uh, give quite a lot of information about this, they were also very concerned about the possibility that they themselves if, if they did not do something to boost their standing and ensure their permanence in power or their continuation in power, um, they themselves could find themselves prosecuted by a, a government which eventually took over from them and charged with really terrible crimes, and which is, of course, what eventually took place. 
So that, that was um, a powerful motivation. And I think also, uh, funnily enough, one of the factors was um, that the Argentine military had a degree of contempt for its own soldiery, if I can put it that way. Um, these were not professionals, yeah, most of them. They, they were conscripts. Um, they, they were conscripted on a, on a particular rota, uh, which meant that they had only received part of their training at the time they were sent to the Falklands. And the, the whole culture of the Argentine forces was, uh, what can I say, they, I, I suspect they were less concerned with, with the welfare and professionalism of their troops than, let us say, we hope, the British armed forces. It certainly gives um, gives some thought for what's happening today in Ukraine when you talk about that. Um, what do you think we all need to understand from this period of history? Well, I think one um, immediate lesson, which Vladimir Putin might have well done well to absorb, um, though he has plenty of other examples to look at, is that it is a great deal easier to start a war uh, than it is to bring one to a successful conclusion. The junta uh, felt... Um, triumphant and um, uh, exulted in the fact that its seizure of the Malvinas or the Falklands had, res uh, had resulted in an enormous demonstration of support and appeared to have reversed their fortunes. But interestingly, in the operational plan uh, for what they were doing, which, which were, it should be said was a handwritten document to an attempt to avoid, it seems, electronic surveillance and signed off by all the leading members of the junta. This plan gave guidelines for what, how they were to seize the islands, but no actual indication of what really should then take place. Um, the Argentines had assumed that Britain would back down. And of course, this was not the case, and they had no plan to counter that. And uh, one can, uh, as I say, make perhaps some uh, modern parallels that it is a great deal easier to start a war than it is to bring one to a successful conclusion. Your ambition was always to be an international reporter. If you were reporting now, where would you be and what would you be doing? Would it be Ukraine or somewhere else? Well, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, obviously, I, I've retired from that and at the age of 71, I'm not in a condition <laughs> where I could be crawling around on my belly uh, on the outskirts <laughs> of Kiev, for example. Um, the, the, I mean, I, I spent five years in Russia and I covered extensively the, the, the Russian war in Chechnya, which was a sort of prototype for what is taking place now. A prototype which included, it should be said, um, all the muddle, misjudgments, uh, use of blanket firepower involving the, the civilian population, all the things that we're, or many of the things that we're seeing now. Though, of course, the Chechens did not have access to the sort of advanced anti-tank weaponry um, that, that the Ukrainians have been supplied with. Having said that, in the, this new war which Putin has launched, um, the, the option does not exist, I believe, for a Western journalist uh, to cover the war from the Russian side. So I would assume that if I were uh, assigned to cover it, I would be doing it on, like many of my colleagues <laughs> on the Ukrainian side uh, and hoping against hope that I didn't make uh, the fatal misjudgment of going one checkpoint too far, as one or two of our colleagues sadly have done. Julian Mannion, very good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. This is Zitrep.